This is Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are shield about me, my glory and a lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. This is the word of the Lord. And welcome to all of you again. This gathering is great to see all of you. It's great to be studying God's word, singing God's word, hearing God's word, and celebrating God's grace together. Uh, Mark just read for us Psalm 3. Psalm 3 are the words of a man who's neck deep in a major crisis. This man is in trouble. And to make matters worse, it's kind of his own fault at least in part, and we'll see that in just a moment. But here's the message I hope we all walk away with today. Here's what Psalm 3 teaches us. God keeps his promises despite our failures and our foolishness. God keeps his word in spite of our inconsistencies and our sins. That means that there's hope for us in whatever trouble we face, even when it's trouble of our own making. Perhaps you would agree with me that the hardest problems to face are the ones that you yourself have caused. For example, if you're experiencing financial trouble, that's always hard, isn't it? But isn't it a little bit harder when, when you can trace the, that, that money trouble back to your own unwise choices? And you find yourself thinking, how could I have been so stupid? What was I thinking? Now look at the mess I'm in. Or if your marriage is broken and you're not sure it can be fixed, and isn't it harder to face those relational problems when, when you realize that you're to blame, at least in part, for the state of that relationship? that you're not just a passive sufferer, but, but you've had a hand in creating this mess. Of course, any kind of trouble can lead to worry and fear, but when your worry and your fear are mixed with regret and guilt, that's a particular kind of pain, isn't it? It's harder to deal with trouble when you know you're to blame. Please keep that in mind as we read and we learn from Psalm 3 this morning. Psalm 3 happens to be the first psalm that's specifically attributed to David, King David. He's, he's the most celebrated king in all of, of, of the history of Israel. 
This man knew what it was like to be surrounded by loyal subjects, adoring subjects. But here in Psalm 3, that's not where he's at. He says in verse 1, I invite you to read it with me. He says, oh, Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me, not rising to praise me, rising to take me out. In verse 2, he says, many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. The poetry here, it paints a, a picture of this king surrounded by enemies on every side. They're encroaching closer and closer. He's drowning in, the, in this rising sea of trouble. And he's hearing that lie. People are saying it. Maybe you're familiar with this lie. There's no hope for you. God's not going to get you out of this, out of this mess that you made. Not this time. You're on your own. There's an important backstory here, and it's, um, it's alluded to in that heading where it says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And when you read that, you might think, what in the world would cause a father to flee his own son? What would cause a king to have to flee from his own son? Well, to understand what's going on here, you need to know this family's history. In fact, you need to rewind to what we saw two weeks ago when we were looking at Psalm 51. And what we saw there is that, is that David had done some wicked, wicked things in his past. He had leveraged his own authority to, to take a married woman who was not married to him. Her name was Bathsheba. You can read about what happened there in 2 Samuel 11 about David's sin there. He impregnated this woman, Bathsheba, and then he tried to cover it all up. And eventually he had her husband murdered, killed. And then he married Bathsheba, and, and he went on with his life as if all was well. But God would not let this stand. God sends a prophet named Nathan to speak to King David, to confront him, and Nathan tells David that the consequences of his sin would be heavy. Let's read what God told David through the prophet Nathan, just a piece of it in 2 Samuel chapter 12. He says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, look at the consequences. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, David, because you have despised me and you have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, more consequences, look at this. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. David's sin would have painful consequences for him and for his family. The Bible is really honest with us about the difficulties and messiness of life. But the Bible is also honest enough to show us that sometimes we make our lives harder and we make our lives messier through our own foolish choices and our own sin. That's where David finds himself. 
in Psalm 3, dealing with the fallout that was prophesied by Nathan years before. If you weren't here two weeks ago, or if you were here, I should say, two weeks ago, you, you may remember that the, those prophets' words to David, they, they shook David and they drove him to humble himself and to cry out to God with these words of repentance in Psalm 51. Psalm 51, as we saw two weeks ago, taught us that true repentance leads to forgiveness and freedom. True repentance, which means turning away from sin, when we really confess what we've done and we leave it behind, true repentance leads to forgiveness and freedom. But Psalm 3 shows us a slightly different angle on sin. Doesn't contradict Psalm 51, but what Psalm 3 tells us is that repentance doesn't erase every consequence of sin. Repentance brings forgiveness and freedom from the eternal consequences of sin, but repentance doesn't always erase every consequence of sin. Now, now it's true that when you do repent and turn away from sin and you trust in the atoning death of Jesus Christ, God will, in fact, forgive you of all your sins, past, present, and future. You will not be judged. You will not be eternally separated from God. You're saved from the eternal consequences of your sin. God will accept you fully, forever. But that doesn't mean that you won't experience the temporary, but very real effects of your sin in this life. Some of us know that firsthand. We feel the effects of our past sins in our body. We see it in our families. It doesn't erase the damage that your sin has done to others either. You see, sin, even forgiven sin, always has real consequences. And this was all too clear to David because Nathan's prophecy proved true. Remember, Nathan had said to David, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And now, years later, it's happened. Years later, David's son named Absalom staged an uprising, a rebellion, and he tried to dethrone his father. He tried to take his, his father's throne. Not only that, he, he wanted to take his father's life. You can read about it in 2 Samuel 15. Let me read just a, a piece of that narrative to you. In 2 Samuel 15, 13, it says, And a messenger came to David, the king, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. You see, Absalom had undermined King David's influence and had won over the hearts of the people. And then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let's flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, he said, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of his sword. Here is a king talking about his son, the threat that his son had become. Down in verse 30 of that same chapter, it says, But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. We, he, he's escaping from home, and it says, He went up weeping as he went, 
and barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went. This glorious king was now a fugitive. There, there's more backstory though. After all, Absalom's plan to overthrow his dad didn't appear out of nowhere. It wasn't just on a whim. You see, we can trace that rebellion all the way back to something that happened years earlier when Absalom's sister, Tamar, was raped. Absalom's sister, Tamar, was raped, not just by anyone, but, but by their half-brother, whose name was Amnon. They were all David's children by different mothers. Absalom and Tamar were full siblings. Amnon was a half-sibling from another wife. And notice, by the way, that, that at this point in his life, David, David has several wives all at once. And that's something that God never endorsed. It's something that God never okayed. Polygamy has never been in line with God's will. It's always been contrary to God's design. So David's family life, you can see, was complicated to say the least, right? And even that inner strife between these half-siblings, we can look at even that, I believe, as, as, as some of the consequences of David's sin. The messiness of his household could trace back the decisions he had made. In any case, Amnon sexually assaulted his own half-sister, Tamar. He destroyed Tamar's life. And Absalom, her brother, took Tamar into his home to care for her. And he was filled with rage. He was filled with rage against his half-brother Amnon for what he had done to his sister. Their father David was angry about all this too, but as far as we can see, he didn't really do much about it, which is really strange. As far as we can see, he was passive, David was, in the face of his daughter's assault. And so two years later, Absalom decides to take justice into his own hands and he murders his half-brother, Amnon, finally avenging his sister. Now, you can imagine how this even further complicated the messy relationships and dynamics within David's family. Absalom fled into exile for three years after murdering Amnon. Eventually, he was allowed back to Jerusalem. But his father wouldn't even speak to him or see him for another few years. Imagine, imagine the anger that, that had built up inside of Absalom over all these years. Anger that led to this plan to take the throne by violence. Perhaps he thought of well, my, my father, David, can't even do justice in our household. I'm going to take this kingdom from him. Filled with self-righteousness, perhaps. He decides to move in violence against his father. Now, now, all of that background that I just gave you isn't there to, to justify what Absalom did. But it might help us understand 
why he did it. Perhaps it helps us understand a little bit of, of how uh, David's polygamy, for instance, and his, his failure to act when Tamar was, was raped, his decision to, to punish Absalom the way he did and reject Absalom the way he did, all of this and more, it, 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 it led and it played into the trouble that David now finds himself in. He, being chased away from home by his enemies, weeping, running for his life, barefoot, and on the lamb. Clearly, clearly sin, even forgiven sin, has real consequences. This is what this narrative teaches us. We all know that already, don't we? Maybe you've seen this, how, how even after you've repented and you've sought forgiveness from God and you've sought forgiveness from people that you've hurt, it doesn't always make everything okay, does it? Everything just doesn't go back to normal. Things may be settled vertically between you and the Lord, but the horizontal relationships, that, that's another story sometimes. It can take years to, to regain trust from those that we've injured, if it's possible at all. And many of us, I, I, I wonder if many of us even here are living with the earthly consequences from decisions we've made in the past that were foolish, that were disobedient. David knew that feeling. He knew the weight of carrying that. But what does he do with it? What does he do with it? That's what we need to see as we, as we finally look closely at Psalm 3 and David's words there. Go back to those first two verses where David cries out, Oh Lord, how many are my foes? How many are rising against me? Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Again, I wonder if David was tempted to believe that lie. There's no rescue for me. I mean, I, I see my fingerprints all over this trouble. If I had been a better father, if I had been a better king, if I had been a better husband, if I had been who God called me to be, I wouldn't be in this situation. I wonder, I wonder if anyone here can relate to that kind of guilt and fear. The kind of guilt and fear that makes it hard to even pray about the problems that you're facing because you feel like you deserve these problems. How can I ask for mercy and rescue when this is my fault? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever thought, God won't save me from the mess that I've made? Well, whether David was tempted to believe that or not, he chose not to believe it. He chose to reject those lies because they are, in fact, lies. What does David choose to believe instead? What does David choose to hold on to? Read, read verse 3 with me. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. But you, O Lord, these are some of the most relieving, uh, hope-filled words in the Bible. But you, O Lord, I know what I've done. Like he says in Psalm 51, my sins are always before me. I can't forget them. And I see what they're doing, these people who are out 
for me. But you, you, O Lord, you, O Lord, those words, but you or but God, they, they should sound familiar to you if you're a reader of the Bible. But is what linguists call an adversative conjunction. It's, it's, um, it's this kind of word that, that indicates contrast. It indicates opposition, a stark difference. And it shows up a lot in the Bible. I'll give you some examples. Maybe you remember this. When Joseph confronts his brothers in Egypt, his brothers who had sold him into slavery, and Joseph says to them, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And that but God makes all the difference. It completely changes Joseph's perspective on what he's going through. I know why you wanted this to happen, but now I see what God was doing. He meant it for good. Paul the Apostle uses but God in this way. In Ephesians 2, when he tells us, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which which he loved you, he saved you by grace. But God, you were dead, but God made you alive. That same apostle preached in Acts 10. He says, they, they put Jesus to death by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him on the third day. You see, but God changes everything. But God are kind of hinge words in the Bible. Everything in the Bible, everything that we put our hope in hinges on the reality that God changes and uses and opposes and works through terrible, terrible circumstances, evil, sin, and he changes everything. That's what King David had to cling to. But God, but you, O oh Lord. He had to stop focusing on his situation and himself. It's not that he ignores his situation. You see, he presents his situation to the Lord in detail. But then he turns away from himself in a situation, and he says, but you, O oh Lord, I'm, 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 I'm going to stop looking at my own failures. I'm going to stop looking at my own history, my own sin. There's no hope there. But when I look at you, Lord, what does he say in verse 3? He says, you're a shield around me, a shield about me, which means around me, surrounding me. He's saying, you're protecting me on every side. That, that's military language, by the way, the shield. It's a military tool, obviously, a weapon. But a shield, typically, as you picture one, it, it usually protects you on one side, doesn't it? What kind of shield is this? A shield like this that protects you all around? That didn't exist in David's day. I'm not sure it even exists today, frankly. Maybe it exists in the movies. I've seen it in, in the Marvel movies. I think they have a, a force field like this in, in Wakanda, actually, that will, pro, that will protect the whole nation. I think Wanda Maximoff, I think, the, I think she, she can create this, uh, this force field that protects her 360 degrees in every direction. David was not an Avenger. What is he saying here? This kind of shield didn't exist. Huh. David says, you, but you, Lord, you are this shield. 
about me. Providing me with 360 degree protection. And then he says in verse 3, you are my glory. You're my glory. Think about who's saying this. Again, it's David. David knew what it felt like to possess power. He knew what it felt like to receive praise. He had experienced all that glory. He was a conquering warrior and a beloved king. And that was what he gloried in. Perhaps for a time. Perhaps sometimes he would find himself glorying in that. But no longer. He's been brought so low and he's come to realize, no, it's you, Lord. You, Lord, are my glory. I've, I've experienced the praise of people. I know what it means to, to wield power and authority. But you, O oh Lord, you, O oh Lord, are my real glory. It's in you that I find real significance, um, uh, real worth. It's all in you. Because at this point, you realize David had lost his power. He couldn't glory in his approval ratings because they were at an all-time low. Only a handful of people were really on his side at this point. There was no glory in his record. He couldn't look at his history because when he looks back, what does he see? He sees adultery. He sees murder, perhaps even rape. His glory was not in his parenting because he had failed in that area. He sees that all his hope, all his significance, all his worthiness is in God alone. I wonder if we can say this. Can you say this? I've tried to find my own glory, but, but you, O oh Lord, you, O oh Lord, really are my glory. And in verse 3, he also says, he says, you are the lifter of my head. Remember, David was beaten down. Picture him leaving Jerusalem. It says his, his head was down. It was covered. The crown is gone. It's covered. He's barefoot, weeping. Imagine a, a shamed, discouraged child who's weighed down by his own failure. He's dejected. His head is hung low. And, and, and the father of this young child walks over and lovingly places his hand gently under his child's chin and lifts his head. That's God. That's God. To David, to all of us who are his children, he is the lifter of our heads. Verse 5 says, I lay down and slept. I woke up again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Um, what's David talking about here? Uh, going to sleep is an act of trust, isn't it? You don't close your eyes and go to sleep around people that you think are about to kill you. And when you're afraid or you're troubled, it's not easy to fall asleep, is it? My, um, my two youngest kids and I, we, we camped out in our, in our backyard recently. It's fenced in. It's totally safe in the quiet neighborhood. But even in suburban Westchester, I have found that a dark tent can be a scary place especially when you, you hear little creatures outside and, 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 and branches snapping because something's walking around out there. My kids fell asleep. It's because they were tired, for sure, but I also think it's because they trusted me. They trusted that this guy's going to protect us. And I looked at them in the middle of the night, 
because frankly, I had a hard time falling asleep because I was scared. And, and they were, they looked utterly defenseless. They looked utterly vulnerable. And so was David. And David says, at my most defenseless, at my most vulnerable, I was safe. I still woke up. I was okay. It's almost like David is saying, I'm, I'm taking this day by day. The, the trouble I'm facing is real, Lord. But last night I went to sleep and today I woke up okay. So I'll trust you again. Tonight I plan to go to sleep again and trust that you'll keep me safe and I'll wake up again. And I don't have to be afraid even though the trouble is real. When you come down to verse 7 of, of, of Psalm 3, it might sound to us like David is just being angry and vindictive. Like he's saying, God, smash my enemies. Which is odd, especially since he's talking about his own son. Smash him, crush them. But when you look more closely, that's not what David's saying. What David is doing here is he's asking for rescue. Look, he says, arise, O Lord, verse 7, save me, O my God. For, for means because, right? Because, here's why I'm asking you, Lord, to save me. Because you strike my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. He's saying, I've seen you do this before. This is how you operate, Lord. You've smacked my enemies on their faces. What, think about what, what makes getting smacked so bad, especially as an adult. What makes getting smacked so bad, or even as a kid? It's really not the pain as much as it's the insult. I mean, unless you really get smacked by someone hard and it knocks you out, but typically, it's the humiliation. How dare you smack me? To smack someone is to treat them like they're not a threat like they're weak, like they're nothing. And David is saying, this is what you've done to my enemies, Lord. You've shown my enemies that they can't stand up to you. You've humiliated my enemies. That's why I can trust you. When he says, you break the teeth of the wicked, it's not about God smashing the faces of, God, of David's enemies. In a sense, it's about God disarming his enemies. Imagine a predator, a vicious predator, a panther, a cougar, but with no teeth, no claws. David is saying the people who are threatening me are ultimately like toothless predators. Remember the imagery. They're scary. They can roar. And they're on me. They're getting close. I can see them and smell them, and it's scary. But then I remember, Lord, you've removed their teeth broken them right out of their mouths. Remember the imagery from verse 1. David's enemies surround him, and they're closing in on him, but he knows that because of God's promises to him, ultimately they are harmless, like beasts with no teeth. They can harm me, but only to a point. These consequences of my own sin are real, but they're, they only go so far. And relative to the blessing that I have in Christ, this is nothing. I can weather this. It's really remarkable when you think about what David's saying because his life is in danger. He has to escape his own home. He's on the brink of losing everything, and, and yet he has the kind of faith to say, verse 6, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. How can a man with such a, a, a checkered past be so confident 
that God will have his back and rescue him in the end. It's not cockiness. This isn't, this isn't swagger on David's part. This is a man who absolutely trusts the promises of his God. This is a man who really believes what God told him. I haven't even told you what those promises were that God had made to David, but, but here they are. Here are those promises. Long before the prophet Nathan came to and confronted David over his sin, that same prophet was sent by God to tell David this. This is in better times. 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. God says, through Nathan to the king, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Your kingdom, in other words, is secure, David. God had promised him, I'm not going to allow your kingdom to be taken away from you ever. That didn't mean that David was never going to die. He did, in fact, one day die. But it means that his life wouldn't end this way. As in, at the hands of his enemy, who happened to be his son, David knew this wasn't the end of the story because he had heard the promise of God and had believed it. In fact, in 2 Samuel 7, 11, God said this, I will give you rest from all your enemies. David knew his story wouldn't end in shame as a fugitive because God had told him so. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 9, God says, I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. God said, I'm going to handle your enemies. And God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises despite our failures and despite our foolishness. God keeps his word in spite of of our inconsistencies and sin. That was David's hope. That's what he's clinging to. And that can be our hope too. But you might say, even as you hear those words, these are promises for David. <laughs> they were specific to him. God didn't make those promises to me. Well, you might say, what, 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 what does all that have to do with, with me? Well, well, here's the thing. When God made those covenant promises to David. It certainly meant that David's throne was secure. He didn't have to worry about Absalom taking it away. It wasn't going to work. But the covenant went deeper than that. The Lord went on to promise to David that a descendant of David from the house of David would one day rule as king over God's people. And that descendant, his rule, would last forever. And the prophets of ancient Israel knew this. They knew that that promise pointed to the Messiah. They, they looked as prophets for a day when that promise would be fulfilled, not just in David's lifetime, but it would be fulfilled ultimately in the Messiah, who would come one day to reign. He's Christ. He's Jesus of Nazareth, who descended from King David, and he rules now. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. See, that king, he, he would come from the family line of David, and, but he'd be a better king, not a murdering, neglectful ruler 
prone to disobedience and selfishness like many of us are. No, this king would be a perfect king, a sinless king, who, who would not only lead his people righteously, but who would willingly die in their place to rescue them from their sin. And there, therein, lies the promise to anyone who trusts in this king. If you trust in this king, Jesus, you will experience rescue ultimately, eternally. Romans 10.9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Yes, like David, you may have to face the real consequences, the temporary effects of your sin and failures in this life. But you also experience forgiveness and you're embraced by God and you're secure forever under his loving care and rule. And that's your hope. No matter what trouble you face in life, even if you are to blame for that trouble, your pain and your suffering will not have the last word. No crisis ultimately can overcome you if you have believed in Jesus as Lord. You may walk through disappointment and hardship for a time. And like I said, some of that hardship might be your own fault. But even then, that won't be the end of your story. In fact, your Lord will give you the grace to navigate that trouble and that hardship now. And you will emerge on the other side of it victorious and safe so that you and I can say like David in Samuel 7, 2 Samuel, oh, Lord God, you are God. You are God. And your words are true. Despite my sin, my inconsistencies, I've been a fool half the time. But your words are true. But you, oh Lord, your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. God has made promises not only to his servant David, but to everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ. And those promises always stand. And that's why David can end Psalm 3 the way he does. In verse 8, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. I can't rescue or remove myself from this mess that I'm in. But that doesn't mean that there's no rescue and there's no hope for me because salvation belongs to the Lord and he promised to rescue me. And that's why David can end with these words, the very end of verse 8, your blessing be on your people. Because the blessing of God's promises, they weren't just for that flawed and yet remarkable ancient ruler who lived a thousand years, thousand BC, give or take, those promises are for all God's people, all who trust in Jesus, the true and better perfect king. You know, there's this interesting line in Psalm 3 that we didn't really even look at, but it's in verse 4, and I'll end with it. He says in verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. And that holy hill that David's talking about is the place where the tabernacle would sit in Jerusalem. It's where God was worshipped. It's where... Uh, sacrifices were offered to atone for the sins of Israel. And David says, you, you came from your holy hill where you dwell and you came and you saved me. And I can't read that without thinking about the fact that um, 
over a thousand years or so later, after David was gone and Jesus the king would die as a sacrifice on another hill, a horrible hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And with his death, that king would answer from that hill the cries of his suffering people. He answered when Jesus died on that cross, on that horrible hill, he answered the cries of everyone who trusts in him in the midst of their trouble and pain. He answered by dying in our place, overcoming our, our worst enemies, sin, and its ultimate consequence, death. And he answered by leaving those enemies ashamed and toothless. Yes, Jesus is like a shield around us. Because on the cross, he absorbed the wrath from every angle. He absorbed the shame from every angle and covered us. Although we deserve that shame, we deserve that wrath. He absorbed it. And he lifts our head so that we no longer have to face life dejected and ashamed. No, we can rest and we can trust safe and secure in his love. And that means he's not done with us. Follower of Christ, no matter how bad you feel like you have messed up, Jesus is not done with you. If you humbly own up to your failures and lay them before the Lord, not only will he forgive you, but like David, he will continue to work through you. He will continue to use you to bless others. He's not done with you. We live in a culture that likes canceling, right? We live in a culture where canceling people is not an uncommon. Someone sins, and, and if those sins are deemed serious enough in the eyes of society, then, then that person no longer gets to be a respectable member of society. That person gets cast aside. That person no longer deserves to have a career. That person no longer deserves respect or dignity. They're canceled, discarded, and it's all their fault. It's the kind of culture we're living in, and I, I, I guess we can argue about whether or not that's fair or just, but, but know this, it's not how God operates. It's not how God operates. Instead, he takes failures and he takes sinners, like David, and every other person in Scripture is minus one, Jesus. People who can't walk straight, will keep falling, and he redeems them, and he works through them, and he never leaves them, and that's our hope in Jesus. That's hope for any parent who regrets decisions they've made and things they've said, and now they see the effects of those sins in their children's lives, and it burdens them with guilt and regret. This is hope for you. This is hope for any child who regrets the choices that they've made that disappointed and hurt their parents and themselves. It's hope for any husband or wife who regrets the selfishness that led them to neglect their spouse or to hurt their spouse. Whatever consequences you're facing, trust in the Lord and you will see that he is not done with you. You will see that he keeps his promises despite your failures and sin. 
because salvation really does belong to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, give us faith to see you the way this broken and beaten down king saw you in the midst of trouble, whether it's trouble that we're suffering at the hands of others or trouble that we've caused ourselves, help us to see you the way David sees you here. And we ask that we would, you would give us the grace we need to pray like he prays here, to be honest and open about what we're feeling and experiencing in it at the same time, to believe your promises and to declare even in our own hearts and even with our own mouths, but you, O oh Lord, you will not fail. You will rescue. Our hope is in you. Thank you for not casting out and discarding those who fail, but drawing them back in, granting repentance and renewal. Oh, Lord, your grace is too much for us to fathom. All we can do is praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.